Welcome to Feminist Popcorn, the celebration and growing archive of the greatest movies about women. I'm Samantha Rare, here with my co-host Elizabeth Frankel, and we're here to talk Girls Will Be Boys, Yentl, Mulan, and The Breadwinner. Let's do this! Yay! Episode 15. Wow! That's nuts. 15 episodes. I'm so proud. I'm proud too. And I think this is a really fun one to celebrate our 15th episode. (laughs) We've got two musicals. Oh yes. We've got two animated movies. Bravo. One of them is a giant celebration of our queen, Barbara Streisand. (laughs) One of them is a Disney classic. Yes. We have yet to talk about Disney on this podcast, Samantha. Yes. And as two millennials, that's just inevitable at some point. (laughs) Yeah. And then one is, to me, one of the best films to come out of the past few years. Yeah. So the theme of this episode is Girls Will Be Boys. Silly title. It is a silly title. I actually looked it up and it is a title of a textbook on the history of cross-dressing. So we got that right. Oh my god. Cross-dressing is such a fun theme. I just want to quickly touch on the distinction between the cross-dressing explored in these films and perhaps the themes of trans identity in these films. As far as we're concerned, at least on the surface anyway, these films are not about trans identity, and so we're not going to explicitly say that they are. But to ignore the impact that these films have had on the way gender identity has been interpreted by our generation, by younger generations in the future, like that's crazy pants. Mm -hmm. You know, of course, these films have had a huge impact on that. They have inspired so many people to feel more comfortable exploring their gender identity, even if the films themselves aren't overtly about gender identity. And for all three, it's a choice, which I think is a really important distinction between cross-dressing in these three movies and transness, which of course is not a choice. Mm. All three have a reason to choose to dress as a boy. Right. And so then once you pass that threshold, you can then get into all the nuance of, well, I really enjoy dressing as a boy. Right. Which then follows inevitably in all three movies. Sure. It's all very gray. It's all very nuanced. And we're excited to get into it. But people have been cross-dressing for thousands of years. Like, these three movies are examples of something that has truly happened in the real world for as long as humans have been alive. This is not just an entertaining trope that, like, Shakespeare came up with. Mm -hmm. Like, people have been cross-dressing for the sake of survival for thousands of years. I think that's really interesting. I also, though, I I love the trope of cross-dressing in literature. Like, contextually, how it's used to tell stories of women in literature, how it's used to secretly tell stories of queerness in literature. Absolutely. I think when you look at Shakespeare's canon between As You Like It and Twelfth Night and Merchant of Venice, I think there's evidence to suggest that those stories were created so that Shakespeare could express love between two men Mm, on stage. Sure. Because, of course, all of the actors were men. So when the female characters would dress up as boys, you would really just see two male actors in men's clothing on stage in love with each other. Right. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. When you were explaining all that, I was already a little confused, which is great, which is what this episode should be. I think there is a moment in As You Like It when what the original audience would have seen was a boy dressed as a girl, disguised as a boy, disguised as a girl, dressed as a boy. Like, it goes that deep. (laughs) (laughs) 
I love As You Like It. Me too. I played Rosalind in really? high school. Oh, my course. senior year of high school. <laughs> but I do remember playing that part, how good it felt to mm. be dressed as a boy on stage. Yeah. Which is weird considering my costume on stage didn't necessarily look very masculine. It was mm. the fact that I was playing the role of a boy that yeah. was so exciting. Wow. And I think when you look at these movies, I kept thinking there isn't anything about pants or short hair that is inherently masculine, except that society says that it is, that the rules say that it is. Yeah. And all three of these films take place in societies where people would have never seen a woman in pants and short hair in their life before. So mm. there would have been no reason to believe that that was a woman dressed as a boy. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's something that I really take for granted, that women have only been wearing pants for about a 100 years. Mm -hmm. In the history of humanity, we are an extremely small minority of a culture that allows women to wear pants. And yet I don't even think about the pants that I wear. Right. Like I just wear pants. <laughs> I'd love to discuss the similar ways in which these three movies tackle this subject great. because there are certain tropes that you see in all three of them. You got a great haircutting scene in all three. Yes. You gotta show that bitch cutting her hair off. Very dramatic <laughs> in the mirror. Her femininity falls to the floor. Uh-huh, exactly. <laughs> all three women have really complex relationships with their fathers. Yeah. Their fathers are like the major influence and inspiration in their lives and all three movies within the first 10 to 15 minutes something happens concerning the father that is the catalyst for the female protagonist's journey yeah and because of that absence of the man or the inability to act of the man the woman has to step forward and take his place both yentl and mulan have scenes where they have to practice their lower voice oh yes Fun. Fun. <laughs> In both Yentl and Mulan, there's at least one shot of their faces split into two sides. <laughs> That's just like a visual metaphor that both of these stories go to. In both Yentl and Mulan, they fall for a very hunky, very overtly masculine man mm -hmm. whose sexuality is tested by having possible feelings for this boy that they're spending a lot of time with. Totally. And that's ripped right out of Shakespeare. Absolutely. And then, of course, there's the big reveal scene mm. in all three, where for different reasons, in Yentl, she makes the choice. In Mulan, she's discovered. Mm -hmm. In The Breadwinner, she tells her secret out of desperation. Yeah. So let's jump right in with Yentl. Yentl. Yentla. <laughs> we suddenly get like 50% more Jewish when we talk about Yentl. Oh my god. I've said it before. I grew up with Fiddler on the Roof on repeat in my house. Movies like this just get really deep into my heart in a powerful way. I just like adore how Jewish this movie is. <laughs> Which has been really important to me that I was able to see this movie and felt seen as a Jewish woman. And I love that Barbara Streisand, who is a Jewish woman, is able to unpack so much about our cultural heritage, the good and the bad. And it's one of the few movies where I really see my family tree reflected. Mm. That's interesting. And that's always been important to me. So Yentl was directed, co-written, 
co-produced and starring Barbara Streisand. Ooh, Barbara Streisand. Based on the play of the same name by Leah Napolin and Isaac Bashevis Singer, itself based on Singer's short story, Yentl the Yeshiva Boy. The screenplay was co-written by Jack Rosenthal, and the music is by Michelle Legrand, and the lyrics are by Alan and Marilyn Bergman. Yeah, let's talk about Barbara, the phenomenon that is Barbara. We love Barbara so much. <laughs> let's get into why we love Barbara, because because I feel like it's this like lame stereotype that Jewish women love Barbara. But I want to unpack fucking why like let's break it down let's deconstruct the magic that is this woman and tell you like it's not just a stereotype it's not just a cliche like she's fucking amazing and here's why frankly i'm mainly obsessed with her because she's a fucking badass bitch who writes directs produces edits stars Mm -hmm. she's just this mogul of artistic achievement and she's like one of the greatest singers of all time but even besides her incredible artistry frankly just seeing a woman who is that confident, who is that bold and that sure of herself, that alone is so inspiring. Mm-hmm. Like Barbara knows she's the most talented person in the world. And that is so important. I know that sounds so weird, but it's really, really important to look at someone like that and be like, wow, that that's allowed. I'm allowed to have that much confidence. Look at Barbara. She's rocking it. I feel like we have this word diva yeah. to represent like the most badass female performers of the 20th century, like Aretha Franklin and Cher and Whitney Houston and Celine Dion and Barbara. That is reflective of A, their talent, but B, and probably most importantly, their intense confidence. Yeah. But then also diva can be used as like a judgmental thing. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, she's a diva. Right. It's like, no, she's the boss. And she has opinions about how things should be done. I love it. Mm -hmm. She first read this story, Yentl the Yeshiva Boy, in the 1960s. She bought the rights to the script in 1968. It took her about 15 years to get this movie made, Mm. even though she had this diva status. Yeah. She was like the biggest star in the world at that point. Right. Producers still did not believe that a woman could handle starring and directing in a single project. Not only that, it was specifically its Jewishness. Producers said that it was too quote-unquote ethnic. Mm. And finally, after years and years of trying to get it made, she was finally able to convince producers by making it a musical. And she never saw it as a musical. Right. Apparently, she never even really saw herself as a musical theater performer. Apparently, when she was younger, she identified as a dramatic actor and then she had this voice for days and people were like you should probably use Mm -hmm. this and then after funny girl happened it sort of set her down this path of being this musical comedy star when i don't know this is true but at least i've read that she wanted to be an actor she saw herself as an actor which a project like yentl would totally support right because she's giving an incredible performance and then these songs are you know i say this with love but they're sort of shoehorned in They're the weakest part of the movie. Yeah. And that's interesting because Barbara sort of has her hands in every single part of this movie. The writing, the direction, the producing, of course the acting. The only part that she didn't have that big a participation in was the composing of the music. Mm. And I think that shows, honestly. Another big like cultural conversation around this movie, the joke is that she was too old to be in Yentl. Mm. That she like didn't look the part. 
which I find so hysterically backwards. Because if you ignore all of that noise and you just watch the movie, it's completely dramaturgically earned that she's like in her 30s or her late 20s. It makes sense for the story. I think honestly, people just felt uncomfortable seeing the lead woman in a movie not be 20 years old. Mm. And people just didn't know what to do with that. So they said she was too old. But if you actually watch the fucking movie, she's not too old. Like Yentl slash Anshul would look like that, would be that age. It's interesting because what the movie accomplishes by making her possibly a little bit older than originally intended in the story mm-hmm. is that she is a contemporary of Avigdor's. Mm-hmm. They are probably the same exact age. He just believes that she's younger because she looks like a boy. Right. In the short story, I think there was like a 15 year right. age difference between them. I think it's much more feminist that she and he are on the same level. Yeah. Oh god, I just subjectively love this movie. Not only did Barbara direct this, Barbara directed throughout her career, and I love the idea that she created a brand of Barbara films. Like, there's a Barbara aesthetic in the world Mm. that people love. And it's because she didn't really make other people's movies. She made her own movies. And I respect that so much. And she has said in follow-up interviews that I directed because I couldn't be heard. You know, she couldn't fit into the mold that Hollywood wanted her to be. And so she just fucking created her own mold. I remember last year at the Golden Globes, Barbara Streisand came on stage and she sort of snarkily said to the audience, backstage, I heard they say I was the only woman to get the Best Director Award. And you know, that was 1984. Mm. She was the first and only woman to receive Best Director at the Golden Globes. Ever. Even now? Even now. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, that makes me want to die. And also, she has said in interviews that she felt like it was just blatant sexism, that she wasn't nominated for an Oscar for Best Directing, Yentl. And I kind of agree. If you watch Yentl, the direction is brilliant. And it goes back to this idea that people weren't ready for her. People were so intimidated by her. I think that comment is really interesting because, yes, clearly, this is a gorgeously directed movie. But also... She was only able to make this movie in the end because she already had that diva status. For the most part, otherwise, women have had a lot of trouble getting hired as directors. Mm. That's the main reason why we haven't seen a lot of women nominated, because women have just like not been able to direct major motion pictures. Yeah. Nikki Caro, who is directing the live-action Mulan, and we're obviously going to talk about the animated Mulan, Nikki Caro is the second woman to direct a film with a budget over $100 million. Mm -hmm. Second. And the first was Ava DuVernay on A Wrinkle in Time. But back to the direction of this movie, which I honestly think is the biggest strength of the movie. Mm. I think she could have told this story very simply. And instead, she told it incredibly artistically and nuanced. It's shot gorgeously. There are beautiful shots of... Her holding up the talus, which is a man's prayer shawl, and the light coming through and showing her feminine silhouette. The first shot of the movie, which is just a basket full of books in the back of a donkey cart on the way to the shtetl. Those books are actually the first character introduced before we meet Yentl, before we learn any characters. So we already know that the most important thing in this movie is the passing of knowledge. Mm. I just think that's really lovely directing. Right. 
the ensemble work, the way she directs extras, which we've said <laughs> is like the greatest mark of a good director, but the extras in this movie are so good and tell complete stories and fill out the life of these scenes. I know, I love that whole opening scene because all of the women are trying to engage with her and talk to her and gossip with her and she like does not have time for gossip. <laughs> she just wants to get these books and go home. The women bore her, the men bore her, everyone bores her. She just wants to learn. Mm. I think that's great. And then of course in the ensemble, work, the bookseller sets the tone of the film really quickly. Picture books for women, sacred books for men. Yeah. And that first interaction that she has with him is really key. I have to say, this movie was very nearly in our tradition episode. Oh, yeah. Because I do think that one of the major, major relationships in this movie is between Yentl and her religion. Yeah. And her place within her community in relation to the rules and structure of that community. Yeah, it's very similar to Whale Rider, that she has to break rules of her tradition in order to embrace her tradition. Mm -hmm. And that's why it's so beautiful that her father sort of escorts her through this transition. We need ally fathers. Like, we need ally men. This movie would not have existed right. if Yentl didn't have this huge catalyst in her character that her father, like, introduced her to this world and gave her permission to. The film is dedicated to Barbara's father. Oh, wow. Like, it's such a testament to the importance of men being there, being present, giving women the space to learn, which is why when he dies, you really fear for Yentl's future. You're like, no one understands this girl. Not only does no one understand her, but without her father, she has nothing. Yeah, she's not married. She probably has nowhere to live. You see the women of the neighborhood helping her move out of her house. Yeah. She's moving to a neighbor's house to probably be a servant there. Mm. But back to the father, he has, honestly, one of the best lines in the movie, mm. in the first scene, where he says, I trust God will understand. I'm not so sure about the neighbors. <laughs> that, to me, encapsulates everything about tradition. Yeah. That sticking to the rules of tradition is so much for other people than yeah. it is for your own relationship with God. Yeah. Ugh, that's so frustrating. When the bookseller in the beginning says women can't read sacred books, do you think that moment was similar, though, to Wajda? And that Wajda, it seemed culturally wasn't allowed to have the bike, but it didn't seem like there was any actual law that says girls can't ride bikes. I was wondering, like, is that just the culture or is it actually written down somewhere that women can't study? That is religious law, as far as I'm aware. Mm -hmm. That didn't even really change for Judaism until like the late 20th century. Mm -hmm. Avador like calls her the devil when he finds out that she has been studying Talmud. You get that incredible shot, like gorgeous directing from Barbara, of her peering through the bars of the balcony above the synagogue where yeah. she wishes she could be down below praying with the men, interacting with religion in the way that she wishes she could. But she's excluded from that experience because she's a woman. I remember in Hebrew school, I went to a fairly religious Hebrew school, which was run by the rabbi's wife at this Orthodox synagogue. And I remember asking her one day, because even as a kid, I was confused why there were different rules for men and women. And her response was very similar to Avigdor's response in this movie, which was that women are naturally closer to God. They're purer, they're virtuous by birth, and so men just have to work harder to please God. There's the moment when Avigdor points to the women breastfeeding by the lake, and he sort of makes 
he makes some kind of comment like, women are so far above us. Mm. That's why they don't study Talmud like we do. And I think that is just as sexist as anything else. But I also don't believe him. Like, I that just, he believes that? Yeah, I that simply, I simply don't believe that. And I don't believe that your Hebrew school teacher thought that either. Mm. I think that any sort of inferiority that people put upon women is inferiority, is coming from a place that you don't think they are as good as you are. It has nothing to do with purity. It has nothing to do with thinking that they are sacred. It's all bullshit to cover up the fact that men don't think women are as good as them. Yeah. But in terms of Yentl's religion as a major character in this movie, I'm not so sure that it's Judaism itself that Yentl is so obsessed with. Mm. I think it's learning. I agree. In this very like insular, closed off community where the only access to learning is through Judaism. That's what she knows about learning. But I do feel like, and this is like going way ahead to the end of the film, I do feel like when Yentl gets on that ship and heads to America and wherever she's going to end up, I don't feel as though she continues on the path of religious education. I feel as though she's probably going to go to college and learn about engineering or law oh. or academics. Wow, that's interesting. Yeah, we'll, we'll get to that when we talk about the ending. Yeah. But I like that you mentioned how insular the world is, that even by breaking this fundamental rule and dressing as a boy and pretending that she's somebody who she's not in order to learn, in order to be liberated, uh-huh. it's still within this very, very closed off community where there's like three choices of how to live yeah. and be a person. You're a male academic, who studies the Talmud or you're a woman at home like those are basically your options so even the men don't have options or you have a job that supports the community like farming or yeah baking but even those three options even for the men who have all the power is still very limited Mm -hmm. when she gets to the town later on in the movie you see there's even a gate that closes Mm -hmm. that separates the Jewish quarter of the city from the rest of the city. Yeah. The scene where all of the students are in what appears to be like a giant mess hall and Mm -hmm. they're playing chess and they're chatting and they're arguing about the Talmud. I sort of humbled myself checking my privilege that I have had access to interesting conversations like that my entire life. Interesting conversations is not a luxury for me. I've been exposed to interesting conversations. I went to a school where I took learning really seriously. I went to college where I took learning really seriously. I engage with people all the time in a way that stimulates me intellectually and psychologically. And watching this movie, seeing the look on Barbara's face when she walks into that room and all these men are yelling, using evidence against each other, and she looks like she's in heaven. Mm -hmm. To me, that scene just resembled like exuberant conversations that I hear men having all the time. Mm. Like they could have been talking about anything in that scene. It didn't have to be Talmud. They could have been talking about Oscar season and I would have believed it, (laughs) that they were that opinionated and that angry at each other. But that's how opinionated and effusive we get. That's why we made this podcast. Yeah. Because those spaces are very loudly taken up by men and women aren't encouraged to join those conversations in the same way. Basically, I think what you're saying is that we need to invite Barbara Streisand onto the podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Barbara, please. We love you. (laughs) She cloned her dog. Okay, so she's crazy. We get it. But we worship her. It's all it's all okay. <laughs> no, I have to just interject. This is totally off topic. My mother 
for her birthday one mm. year was like, no one, no one will go with me. Your father won't go with me. I'm going to go see Barbara Streisand at the Barclay Center. Will you go with me and like take it seriously and have fun? And I was like, will I ever? <laughs> and we had so much fun. And I swear to God, Sam, it was the most impressive, incredible concert I've ever seen in my life. It was so decked out. There was projections. There was spectacle. She sounds exactly the same as she did 60 years ago. Like like her voice has not weakened at all. She's amazing as she ever was. So many costumes. Jamie Foxx was there. He sang a song with her. It was so great. She is a proper, like the phrase doesn't exist, a showwoman, because we say the showman, right? Like the great showman. She's like a proper showman. They filmed that concert and they put it on Netflix and I watched it. And at the very end of the concert, there is, like, very clearly a PowerPoint presentation that Barbara, like, probably made herself of, like, a slideshow of her dog who had passed away. Aww. When you're Barbara, you can do things like that. (laughs) Yeah. That was running on the screen in the background during the concert. Incredible. She can do whatever she wants. She's fucking Barbara. That's another thing. I think more women should aspire to have said about them, they're so-and-so, they can do whatever they want. Mm -hmm. Like I was about to say, she's Barbara, she can do whatever she wants. I want more women to say that. Because you say that about men all the time, right? Like, he's this celebrity, he can do whatever he wants. He bought this, he did that, whatever. To an extent. Okay. But I feel sort of similarly about this as you did about a romance conversation that we had recently about Hunger Games that, like, I feel as though we'll eventually come to a point in feminism when we can say that kind of excess for anyone, no matter if they're men or women, is maybe a little much. Absolutely. But when Barbara's the only one who's this extra and is a woman, like, bless her. Anyway, back to Yentl. Yeah. It was very satisfying that right after Yentl's father died, like a week goes by, like no time at all goes by. And Yentl is like, fuck this, I am out of here. And she just runs away. Like the lack of giving a fuck in those like five minutes between when her father dies and when she's just fully living life as Anshul mm-hmm. was really funny to me. It seems like such an obvious choice to her in yeah. the moment. And I caught myself thinking, where did she get those clothes And then I realized it's her father's clothing. Mm -hmm. It's her father's glasses. She takes on her father's identity. Yeah. Who's her hero. And her brother's name. Mm -hmm. But then even though people don't put it together that she's a woman in men's clothing, she still gets made fun of by the boys at the yeshiva for not having a beard, for being effeminate. She gets called a mama's boy. Yeah, absolutely. There are still those rules of masculinity that she doesn't fall into. And she's lucky that she runs into this guy, Avigdor, who maybe takes pity on her or takes an interest in her. Well, he's mourning the death of his kid brother who reminds him of Anshul. Mm -hmm. Concerning how Barbara looks dressed as Anshul, I just found it so incredible that this movie was made in the 80s. She'd been trying to get it made since the 60s. And she was so open to making this giant film where for the majority of it, she was going to be dressed as a boy. When our culture is so obsessed with women being feminine, being beautiful, I remember thinking, where did Barbara get the courage to commit to a project like that? And it was sort of emotional for me because it occurred to me, oh, well, she's been hearing criticism about how she looks her entire career, that 
she's not pretty enough. And so in a weird backwards way, that kind of liberated her to make more artistic choices. She's like, well, if people are going to criticize that I'm not pretty enough anyway, I might as well make an incredible movie where I'm dressed as a boy the whole time. Mm. Barbara didn't have to worry about not looking pretty enough in this movie because she had already been hearing that, that she wasn't pretty enough for Hollywood. So she might as well just make a great movie anyway and not give a fuck how she looks. That was very powerful for me and ended up being a good thing for her because this movie was such a huge moment in her career, even though I imagine that whole understanding of that cycle must have been very painful. It's just funny because when I think of Barbara Streisand, I think of her more in her incredibly glamorous roles Mm. where she's like indulging in how beautiful she (laughs) is. If you go on YouTube and look up (laughs) Barbara Streisand's performance in On a Clear Day, You Can See Forever, the one song in one scene called Love With All the Trimmings. Love it. (laughs) The title of the song. (laughs) I can't. It is the most over the top, <laughs> hyper sexualized. She is just like <laughs> touching herself Fondling all over herself. her body, like I fucking this guy across a dinner table. <laughs> Sometimes when you and I are blue, we'll just send this to each other. We just text it back and forth. It is the most preposterously confident thing I've ever seen. <laughs> what a phrase. What an amazing phrase. <laughs> preposterously confident. That is Barbara and that should be all women. That's amazing. But that's how I think of Barbara. So I, I'm sure that that was part of it. And I think that's interesting because that's also, I think, a narrative that Lady Gaga identifies with. Mm. Even though she also is Stunning. in the same world and like preposterously confident. Yeah. But is probably constantly told by Hollywood that she doesn't look the part. Mm -hmm. So I admire both sides of that. Totally. It's funny that Lady Gaga just did A Star is Born because I think even before that, I've always sort of associated them in my head together. Mm -hmm. That Lady Gaga and Barbara have similar narratives and similar eccentric wackiness. And I sort of love them both in the same way. (laughs) There's a clip from Lady Gaga doing James Corden's Carpool Karaoke. And he's sort of lightly making fun of her for the lyrics in Bad Romance, that the lyrics are sort of ridiculous. And he says, did anyone tell you that these lyrics were crazy when you were writing it and she just sort of smirks and says no they wouldn't say that because I'm the boss Mm -hmm. and like that's such a Barbara thing to say yeah (laughs) absolutely Barbara of course starred in A Star is Born right in the last iteration of that movie (laughs) I just want to circle back to Barbara's costuming and dressing as Anshul it just broke my heart that within this culture she could only be smart and interesting and express herself and have opinions if she sacrificed this giant part of her identity, which was being a woman. She had to be a man in order to have any of those other aspects of her life. And that was really sad. As much as it was empowering that Yentl took that upon herself to demand those things, it was a shame that the culture failed her and couldn't have let her do that as a woman. Because as we said earlier, it's not maleness or masculinity that I think appealed to her. It was the privileges of maleness. She didn't really seem to have that much of an understanding of femininity or masculinity. She didn't really seem to care either way. Well, I do think towards the end of the film, she begins to acknowledge her femininity in a way of real pride. But that wasn't part of her decision making in foregoing it. I think in the beginning, she didn't think there was that much to lose in sacrificing her femaleness because there was more to gain by being a man. But I think her arc of the film is realizing how much she wants to be a woman. Yeah. And wants these privileges. Yeah. It's lovely. Again, this goes back to Barbara's directing. Mm -hmm. The scene when she's acknowledging her attraction to Avigdor Mm -hmm. 
she has this kind of like sexy scene by herself looking at herself naked in the mirror. Oh yeah. I think that scene is largely about her accepting the fact that she identifies as a woman and she wants all of this. And everything that you just described, which is so beautiful, I don't think is in the original short story. Yes. It's only because of Barbara taking that short story and being like, let me make this truly about a female experience Mm -hmm. and about what a woman goes through in learning to accept and love her body. Yeah. Speaking of her attraction to Avigdor, though. Oh my gosh. All right, let's get into it. Um, I've been waiting to have this conversation for a long time. <laughs> I have a problem watching this movie. You do. You I have, have a, a problem. huge problem. I think you just have a problem. It's a problem. <laughs> I cannot watch this movie because I'm so distracted by how attracted I am to Mandy Patinkin. <laughs> Specifically Mandy Patinkin in this film. Yeah. You all might know Mandy Patinkin from his other iconic roles. He played Inigo Montoya in The Princess Bride. Yes. He plays Saul in Homeland. He's one of the most iconic Broadway stars of all time. Yeah. Side note, I know it's like a choice, like a creative choice that Barbara Streisand is the only one who sings in this movie, (laughs) but for the love of God... They have the greatest male singer of all time in this movie, and he's not going to sing? Are you kidding me? What a wasted duet that could have been between Barbara and Mandy. What the hell? (laughs) I'm going to send you all to YouTube once again. Just, like, look up Mandy Patinkin singing Move On from Sunday in the Park with George, (laughs) a duet with Bernadette Peters. It is the most beautiful musical theater song ever written. It's funny that I would get emotional about an artistic piece that we're not actually discussing right now on the podcast, but my relationship to Sunday in the Park with George growing up really shaped me in a very, very profound way. And so as much as I love Mandy from this and from Princess Bride, when I see him, he's, he's only George to me. He will be George forever. And it's very emotional to even look at him, like to even see his face gets me emotional because I think of Sunday in the Park with George and everything I learned from that show and how it totally defined who I was for a while, the way that I look at art and the way I look at relationships. So Mandy Patinkin, God bless you. We're big fans. He is absurdly attractive in this movie. He is, but it's a very important juxtaposition that while he is absurdly attractive, Avigdor is really flawed. He's problematic. He's super problematic in a way that is so helpful to the storytelling of this movie. You know, it's not that he's poorly written. He's perfectly written. Like, it's a beautiful character for what this story needs. But in terms of idolizing him as a, like, fantasy boyfriend, like, no. Problematic, super (laughs) bad, no. (laughs) Does not understand women. I just, like, I'm not even ready to talk about his character yet. I'm, like, just (laughs) here to objectify him. (laughs) I just want to say that, like, I don't know what it is. For some reason, every guy I've ever dated has somehow resembled Mandy Patinkin in this movie. True. Your whole adult life has been trying to get back to Mandy Patinkin and Yentl. (laughs) My dad, my whole life, has encouraged me to go after Jewish boys, and I've always pushed against that. And yet... When Mandy Patinkin looks lovingly into Yendel's eyes and says the words, Mazel tov. <laughs> Something in me just, like, flips. It flips a switch and I go, yes. I think that's for you and your therapist. <laughs> 
I have this theory that Barbara Streisand created the, quote, female gaze in film with this one scene of Mandy Patinkin by the lake, sopping wet, (laughs) naked, just like languidly posing on the grass. Before that, there were not many female directors. Nobody was filming men in that way Mm. from the perspective of a woman just like ogling his naked, wet, dripping body (laughs) with the sunlight glinting through his curly hair. (laughs) It's so much. It is, but just to play devil's advocate, I think Barbara does all of that, and because she's a genius, she then immediately subverts it with a really, really problematic scene. Yes. Where he basically throws Anshul into the water, which felt so invasive, and like bordering on harassment. Like, you can't make people's bodies do things that they don't want to do. And so, as much as we're meant to idolize and romanticize Avigdor, we then two seconds later are reminded to be like, oh yeah, this man is the epitome of the patriarchy. Well, I think that scene is interesting because I think what it's illustrating is this kind of rough boys will be boys energy that he sees Anshul as one of the boys and that's how boys interact. We roughhouse, we tackle each other, we push each other, we make fun of each other for not having courage to do something. And it's really exciting now that we're giving men permission to say that that's unacceptable. Mm-hmm. Like from my, you know, millennial post Me Too perspective, Avigdor trying to throw Anshul in the water is unfucking acceptable. <laughs> Doesn't matter the context that Anshul is in disguise and they're cross-dressing. Like it's, it all seems very intentional being juxtaposed against how much we're supposed to love Avigdor. And I think Barbara was just being a feminist way ahead of her time mm. in knowing that we can love men like this, but they're also really ignorant about how to treat people. Well, I think the way that she tackles Avigdor's character throughout the film is incredibly astute and progressive and he is incredibly flawed he is absolutely not the perfect love interest for this character Um, no he's like a horrible love interest right (laughs) we'll unpack all of this even more when, when we get to our discussion of the ending of this film which is just brilliant on so many levels absolutely mandy patinkin's acting style in this movie is really interesting because it's almost as if he's in a different movie than barbara he grounds this movie his performance is truly really subtle Mm. and it's quiet and it's intense and barbara is so theatrical and so big and so full that the two of them complement each other really well. And you can see why each of them is really attracted to the other person because they really approach their personalities in very different ways. Mandy is sort of like that in every performance. Like his subtlety is so gorgeous. But in all of his movies, even Inigo Montoya is very soft and beautiful and kind and Mm. gentle, even though there's this dark, vengeful rage (laughs) underneath. And in this, there's such patriarchal rage. But Avigdor expresses himself actually very gently, Mm -hmm. which is just different from the way Anshul expresses themselves, which is usually very forward. There's a lot of volume there. There's a lot of effusiveness and passion behind the way that Barbara speaks, both as Yentl and as Anshul. It's just a nice juxtaposition between our two leading characters. Have you ever seen that video clip of Barbara and Mandy filming the scene at the end, the big reveal scene. You sent it to me. It's really interesting. And they're like both acting, but then she at one point flips out of acting mode into director mode and Mm -hmm. she's like giving direction to him. It's like wild to watch. It's really cool. Yeah. These two powerhouses. Mm -hmm. 
What you said earlier about the female gaze, about how this movie is so obviously from a female perspective, not just that the protagonist is a woman, but that clearly the director is a woman. Mm-hmm. The the engine behind this film is a female gaze. The moment when Mandy Patinkin is like, get in bed. <laughs> Only a woman could have pulled off how funny that is directed. <laughs> She's playing a joke on us because we know in another context that the sexuality of this moment would be the point. But because Anshul has to hide the mm. situation and Avigdor has no idea what's going on, we have the dramatic irony of knowing that there's actually a sexuality to this moment that isn't being discussed. And there's a sexualization of Avigdor that a male director probably wouldn't have understood how to do. Mm. Like the way that he like hangs all over her yeah. in bed and you see the look on her face that's just like, <laughs> oh my god, oh my god, oh my god. <laughs> It's just brilliant. And that comes again later when Anshul asks, why do you always grab me? Yes. And Avigdor seems really self-conscious and embarrassed and is suddenly playing back all these moments in his head of feeling something very unusual and something he's never felt before. Well, that leads into another conversation, which is about the queerness of this film. Absolutely. It seemed clearer to me than ever that Avigdor would have fooled around with Anshul if this was a different time. Like our conversation with a league of their own that if those characters had been transplanted to another culture uh-huh. they would have acted differently like Amshel and Avigdor simply would have just fooled around <laughs> and that would have been fine you know what I mean and Avigdor wouldn't have questioned his entire identity as a man and he wouldn't have questioned his relationship to God like they would have just like hooked up and it would have been fine depending on yeah the context if they had been living in a secular liberal society yeah it's very clear to me that the lines are blurred between all three participants in this love triangle. Absolutely. Yentl is clearly queer. Related to her relationship with Hadass, you mean? Yes. Yeah, totally. And we'll get to Hadass in a sec. Avigdor has that line in the reveal scene when he says, like, I thought there was something wrong with me. He admits to having sexual feelings for Anshul. Yeah. Which really calls back to the Shakespeare plays that we were talking about yeah. before, where that is a big plot point in each of those stories. Yeah. Yeah, Orlando, like, blatantly falls in love with Ganymede. Mm-hmm. Although, do you think that it's a bit, I don't know if the word is disrespectful, but the precedent that Shakespeare set is that you can explore a romantic relationship between two men as long as in the end, oh, don't worry, he wasn't really gay right. because it was a woman in disguise. Like, don't worry, Avigdor doesn't really need to explore any queer feelings he might be having because it was Yentl all along. Mm -hmm. Does that feel kind of disrespectful to you that saying queer feelings are really just a costume that as long as you're able to take off, it's okay? I think that's totally valid, except considering that, I mean, Shakespeare's stories are incredibly old and this movie in the context of the 1970s, 80s, even having that hint of queerness within this heterosexual attraction Mm -hmm. was kind of radical. Totally. I think if Yentl were to be made today, Mm -hmm. I wouldn't feel that way. I would want them to explore Avigdor's attraction to men in a serious way. Absolutely. But I do give Barbara credit for touching on it even as little as she does in 1984 when this movie was made. Yeah, absolutely. That's interesting you say if it was made today, because I kept thinking while I was watching this, I want to see a movie where at the very end, after it's revealed that the woman is a woman and she's been cross-dressing, that the male love interest 
realizes that he's queer. I mean, queerness is a spectrum. Like, it just means that he's open to other kinds of sexual and romantic relationships with all kinds of people. It doesn't have to be on this gender binary of I'm straight or I'm gay. Like, the whole point of these movies is to open up this conversation of nuance of gender and gender expression. I'm excited to see a movie that actually taps into that nuance rather than Avigdor just letting himself off the hook that he's straight because Anshul ended up actually being a woman. Mm -hmm. Yentl. I think that's really well said. I'm excited excited for those really complex nuances, that gray area, to be explored in, in future movies. I was thinking during Mulan, there's one shot of her walking past women working in a field mm. that sort of look up at her and giggle yeah. like they're attracted to her and she like blushes and turns away. I was thinking like, that's the movie I want to see. Totally. But so the third member of this love triangle is Hadass. Hadass is such an interesting character because I feel like when she's introduced, she's very one note. She's sort of like the stereotypical image of what a woman in this kind of movie would be. I even wrote down, why do they like her? Right. There's nothing interesting about her. She's so quiet. She is the ideal woman as far as Avigdor is concerned, meaning she's quiet. She's obedient. She doesn't think for herself. She's cute. He even says those words. Yeah. Yeah, she's beautiful. She's feminine. When Yentl starts singing about Hadass the first time, I made a note that she hasn't said anything. Like, Hadass has had no lines at that point. Right. When Yentl starts saying, oh, of course he loves her. She's so beautiful. Like, Hadass hasn't said anything yet. Well, that's what Yentl has been taught her whole life, what a woman should be. Yeah. And what she should have been if she was a proper woman. Right. When Avigdor refers to Hadass as she was exactly what I wanted, my heart sort of broke because that's what women like Yentl hear all the time in every generation across history. Yeah. You know, like that's what women hear of, oh, the man that I love wants someone that I will never be because he wants someone simpler than I am. Mm. But in those lines, I think it's very clear that Yentl is exploring some kind of attraction of her own to Hadass. Yeah, I think it's really clear that Yentl has the excuse to explore those feelings because she's living as Anshul. Mm-hmm. But might have had those feelings anyway, and probably would have. Mm-hmm. Hadass, we learn later on after they've been married has her own very vibrant sexuality. Yeah. She's very attracted to both Avigdor and Anshul. Yeah. She's very interested in consummating their marriage. <laughs> and then the stroke of genius in this movie is Yentl teaching Hadass Talmud, like deciding to bring out that side of her that she realizes that all women should have access to. Yeah. I wish that that was more of a flourishing theme by the end of the film. Mm. I feel like we sort of forget about Hadass's education by the end of the movie because we're distracted by all these other big plot points. Yeah. Like I wanted a scene at the end where Hadass says to Avigdor, I'm going to keep studying. So bye. Yeah. <laughs> right. Because Avigdor gets his perfect marriage that he wanted. Yeah. And going back to when Yentl is singing about Hadass, it's interesting because yes, we've talked about the female gaze here, but Anshul is also participating in the male gaze of Hadass. You know, like he's romanticizing Hadass the way that men would romanticize Hadass. So yes, it subverts it because it's actually a woman, but that still felt kind of participatory in the system. Like women have internalized the male gaze as well. I think what she learns about Hadass is that there isn't one way to be a woman. Yeah. It's not that she learns that, you know, she's on the right path. 
just because studying means so much to her doesn't mean that it has to mean that much to another woman to see her as like living a valuable life. I think as long as Hadass is shown her options, she's given the opportunity by Yentl to begin the learning process, which it seems like she is just like naturally uninterested in. Mm. She enjoys the kind of like domesticity mm -hmm. that she has grown up in. As long as that's her choice, I think Yentl learns that she can still love Hadass the way she is. Absolutely. I love the line where Anshul is trying to teach Hadass. And then Hadass says, I have soup on the stove. Which reminded me, like, of course, like, women have their own responsibilities as well. You know, like, they can't just drop everything to accommodate this one knowledge. Like, she had other things that she was concerned with. And I think that's great. I love the way you phrased it, that as long as she's shown her options, then she can make her own decision about what she wants. Mm -hmm. And if what she wants is to make soup, that's just as feminist. Mm -hmm. But about Hadassah's attraction to Anshul... I was super interested in the fact that traditional masculinity seemed at times kind of uninviting to Hadass. And she actually appreciated Anshul because Anshul cared about her feelings and asked her opinions and tried to teach her. Yeah. It's why a lot of women are also attracted to a lot more men that don't come across overtly masculine and have a softer side. You know, the phrase is like, oh, these men are in touch with their feminine side. It's like, no, they just listen and respect the woman they're with and ask their opinions about stuff. Might have been the fact that Anshul had this underlying layer of femininity because he was played by a woman, but it might have just been that Anshul listened to Hadass and like cared about her in a way that Avigdor just didn't know how. I sort of hope that Avigdor and Hadass's relationship will reflect that openness because they've met Yentl and yeah. because they've learned from Yentl. Totally. Okay, the big reveal scene though. Ooh. To me, the most powerful scene of the film. Yeah. She reveals her identity to Avigdor by choice. Avigdor freaks out. <laughs> like, the rage of the patriarchy just, like, bursts out of him. <laughs> he is terrified. It's this moment of, like, intense, like, homophobia, misogyny. He's, like, angry and terrified. The look on his face is so scary. Um, he feels so betrayed. Yeah, even though she keeps insisting, like, it's still me, it's still me, it's, you were best friends with me. And then how it switches into this, like, acknowledgement of their attraction, and suddenly he's, like, madly in love with her. That switch is so interesting that when she is someone he's not supposed to be attracted to, she's a devil. And then suddenly when he realizes mm. that he's allowed to be attracted to her, mm. he accepts her. Yeah, brilliant. That's intense. I will say, Avigdor in that scene really did make me slight, not a lot, but made me really slightly empathetic to men who have been told their whole lives one thing about women, about the way that they're supposed to see women, the way they're supposed to interact with women, the expectations of women, and then get totally freaked out when they realize that everything they know is wrong. And I feel like on an individual level, just him as a character, I felt like his rage was earned in that moment, even though on a larger societal level, he's entirely wrong. I don't know, maybe Mandy Patinkin is just such an incredible, beautiful actor, but I, I understood. I understood that rage that he has been lied to. The world has lied to him, and this one person has lied to him. And now it's his responsibility to get his shit together 
and be respectful and move on past. I think a lot of men are dealing with that right now, that they've been told that they can talk about women in a certain way, they can treat women a certain way, they can make jokes about women, and now they're getting slapped in the face being told for the first time that that's wrong. I have some empathy for that, even though now they gotta fucking quickly catch up and Mm -hmm. realize that it's wrong and move on and stop doing it. Yeah, I agree. And it's not just everything he knows, it's literally the rules of the culture that he's known Anshul to love. It's not like this is an outsider, this is the person with whom he's bonded about these rules, about the structure of Judaism. A woman is not allowed to study Talmud. Like all of these very literal, tangible rules are suddenly broken by the person who, as far as he was concerned, was the only other person who understood Talmud as well as he did. It also means that he's participated unwillingly in breaking those rules. Yes. That he's so dedicated to. Yeah. I mean, I don't think this rule was addressed in the film itself, but there's a rule, right, where men and women can't be alone in a room together. Mm -hmm. Once he learns that Anshul is actually a woman, he's actively breaking that rule just by existing in that room. Mm -hmm. I mean, those stakes get really high really fast. That's just great storytelling that now he's like, as long as I'm in this room, I am breaking something sacred. It really makes you think that his entire identity and life, everything he believes in, is wrong. That's heavy. That's a lot for a character. And then, of course, the shift that this film takes, which is the most brilliant stroke in the entire film, could have only come from a female filmmaker. Mm. She reveals that she could only be with Avigdor if she could continue her studies if she could continue in the liberated fashion she's been living in. Yeah. And he doesn't accept that. It basically made my blood boil when he goes, this is crazy, I'm arguing Talmud with a woman. And I'm like, bitch, you've been doing that for the last two hours. Do you not see this giant flaw in your logic? He expects her to conform to the same rules of femininity that Hadass conforms to. Yeah. Just because suddenly he's like accepted that he loves her and they're going to get married. As long as their dynamic can still be entirely on this binary that's established by the patriarchy. And I think Yentl learns a really important lesson in that moment that, you know, she tried to fool the system. She tried to fight the system. And at a certain point, sometimes you just got to escape the system. Yeah. And she decides that she's going to go to America. She's going to go somewhere else. It was really interesting and frustrating, though, this ending for me because it imply that the only person who had an active choice was Yentl, that she sacrifices her love for Avigdor in order to learn. But no one comments on the active choice that Avigdor could have made to maintain his relationship with her still learning. Like, why couldn't he have said, okay, we'll figure it out? You know, both of them have an active choice to make and she's the one that we pay attention to. And his active choice is just sort of presumed, right? Because of course he couldn't Mm. get out of his comfort zone and work a little harder to accommodate the woman he loves and what she wants to do. I just felt like there was a moment of feminism from a man that could have happened there. Not that it should have ended that way, (laughs) because realistically it wouldn't have. But I think that's an important lesson that men can take from this movie, that Avigdor had a choice and he didn't think he did. I wonder though, if the reason Yentl accepts that so quickly is because of Hadass. It's because she now loves Hadass mm-hmm. as much as she loves Avigdor. Mm-hmm. And if she were to go anywhere with Avigdor, that would mean abandoning Hadass. And so she realizes that she has the strength to 
go off and be independent, but she should leave these two admittedly, like, weaker people Mm -hmm. to take care of each other. I agree, but that goes back to Yentl's choice. That's, like, Yentl's active choice. And I'm saying, like, Avigdor's choice. Totally, but I'm saying Avigdor also had a choice Mm -hmm. that he didn't think he had. Yeah. This ending isn't totally satisfying for me, and it's perfect in being unsatisfying, like it ends exactly the way it should have, but I'm really frustrated that Avigdor couldn't have worked harder to make it work, and I know what you had said earlier about her going to America to go to college and study, but life is going to be incredibly difficult for her in America. She's probably going to spend the rest of her life as a seamstress. She's not going to know the language. The men studying Talmud in America are probably going to be just the same, just as unforgiving and cold towards her about a woman studying Talmud as they were in Europe. I don't think her life or her sense of respect that she's getting from her community is going to be any better in America. That's why I think she's going to seek out something else. But do you think that that something else would then give her that kind of agency? Maybe. Maybe. I just, I picture her going and she's going to be a seamstress for the rest of her life to get by because she's not going with anyone. She's a single woman alone in a new world where she's not going to speak the language. Her options are going to be incredibly limited. Mm -hmm. And so I find it beautiful that that's such an empowering moment when she goes off at the end. But I don't know if life is going to be any better for her because life isn't better for a lot of women a lot of the time. And a lot of immigrants yeah. to America. Like, probably her best option is that she'll marry a man who will let her study Talmud. Again, I, I hesitate to say that she's seeking to continue studying Talmud. I think she will That's branch out. Cool. At that point in history in New York, which is where I assume she's headed, mm-hmm. there were co-ed colleges. Like, women were getting educations at that time. Yeah. I just want to drop that my great-great-grandma Ida... Mm-hmm was the first female eye doctor in New York. (laughs) And that was exactly this time period. Oh, that's cool. We also get this amazing moment of her singing on the boat, which is something Barbara loves to do. She loves singing on boats. (laughs) Yes, she does. She just loves boats. It's very dramatic. (laughs) Um, The last shot of her on the ship and then the camera zooming out over the ocean is so cool. Like, yes, cinematography. Beautiful. And then when the credits roll, directed by Barbara Streisand, co-written by Barbara Streisand, produced by Barbara Streisand, Mm -hmm. everything Barbara Streisand. I just remember seeing the credits being like, yes, bitch, her name's on every title card. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's Mm -hmm. all. (laughs) We also have to discuss the functionality of music within this film. Oh, yes. Dramaturgically, it is stunning. It flows in and out of the storytelling, I think, in a really, really smart way. I... See, I would agree with you if I felt like it was necessary, and I usually, for the most part, it feels like it is an unnecessary addition to the movie. I agree, and also subjectively, I don't think the music is as good as the rest of the movie. Yeah. But I think the way that they pigeonholed this music into a movie that could have been fine without it, I think was really well done. Mm -hmm. So we first hear Barbara singing 10 minutes in, and normally you need 10 minutes to train an audience how to watch a movie. If it involves aliens, you have to let them know there's going to be aliens. If there's going to be a lot of action sequences, you got to tell them there's going to be action. The 10 minute mark almost passes. Like they almost miss the moment where we understand that there's going to be music throughout this. Because if they brought it in halfway through, we'd be confused. Mm -hmm. But the dramaturgical rules of how they use singing is really effective. She only sings in voiceover 
or when she's by herself. You never actually see Barbara singing in front of people until the very end. So you know that this is Yentl's voice. It's not Anshul. Like the majority of this film is actually Anshul. The only thread of Yentl's presence throughout the bulk of the movie is her singing. That's the last voice of Yentl mm-hmm. we get. Everything else is about Anshul. And it is this very feminine voice. Yeah. Over the image of Anshul, which is quite masculine. Yeah. And of course, the very clever directing choice that Barbara makes is that to seamlessly transition between images of Anshul surrounded by other people to private moments, the scenes when she is mid-song, but with other people, are in voiceover, and the scenes when she's in private, she's singing out loud. Yeah. Which is very cool. Until the very last scene, in which she is finally proud to be who she is. She has combined both these sides of herself into a single person, and she finally sings in front of all of these people on the ship. And you even see a few of the ensemble members turning to look at her as she passes with an expression on their face like, is this bitch singing? I know, it's amazing. Yeah. (laughs) It also really made sense to me that this is a woman who, by the nature of her culture, is being suppressed, who cannot speak, who cannot express herself. So of course, she sings as the only space to express herself in a world that's oppressive to women's voices. Like in most musicals, frankly, I don't really know why they burst out into song most of the time. I'm like, this could have just been a play. (laughs) Like this could have just been a movie. I don't really understand why they have to sing right now. Of course, Barbara has to sing because she can't speak. Like she can't express herself. She can't say what she's feeling. And then the other side of that is viscerally, it's just a whole other ballgame. Like musicals intellectually don't really make sense to me, but viscerally and emotionally, they're the only kind of storytelling that makes sense because music taps into your soul and makes you understand a character in a way that dialogue just never could. Mm -hmm. And also as an audience, we want theatricality, even if we sometimes can't always phrase it that way. Like we want Hamlet to turn out to us and give us a soliloquy. We want characters to act in a theatrical way to frankly earn our ticket price. Like Mm -hmm. we we want a show and Yentl's a show. It's a big show. (laughs) And the fact that we know that it's Barbara, you know, it's specifically this powerhouse superstar of the 20th century who is famous for for many things but a lot of it is her voice about how incredible she is as a singer the fact that we're seeing this early 20th century woman expressing her feelings through the voice of a famous mid 20th century woman and late 20th century woman it felt kind of meta it made you think about the sexism and doubt that barbara must be feeling in the midst of making this movie Mm -hmm. i just thought it was clever to have a really modern sound like we associate barbara's voice with the second half of the 20th century to have that sound telling this older story which Mm -hmm. that was really clever and also no one can sing like barbara streisand so let's just have her sing all day long and everything (laughs) i agree with that i think Think we've covered it. <laughs> and now we can move on to another musical that's close to our hearts. <laughs> true to your heart? You must be true to your heart. Is that Nicely you, done. Is that what you meant to say? Yes. <laughs> Mulan. Mulan. Let's get down to business. I can't believe we're talking about a Disney movie. Yeah, I'm surprised, but I don't know if it's because it's taken us this long or because we ever got the opportunity to talk about a Disney movie. Because on one hand, you know, we love them, we grew up with them, but on the other hand, they're pretty ubiquitously not feminist. So I'm thrilled that we're including a Disney movie, but also like you and I have every Disney movie memorized. So, Mm -hmm. you know, that's interesting. (laughs) 
I think this might be the only Disney Renaissance movie that has really aged gorgeously. I think of Disney movies the same way I think of romance movies. And I love them in very similar ways Mm -hmm. in that when I was a kid, these were the only movies I had available to me that featured cool, capable, strong, beautiful women. Totally. Beyond that, I was obviously unaware (laughs) of the like problems with these movies. But I do think that of all of them, Mulan has the most interesting perspective in terms of feminism. Yeah, every other Disney Renaissance movie, you grow up and you realize that there were all these giant plot points that were super distressing that you didn't quite clock as a kid. And sort of the opposite happened with Mulan, that I watched it as an adult and was like, oh, I didn't get any of this nuance when I was a kid. That's actually so interesting and so helpful Mm. and so invigorating. Whereas (laughs) I watch, forgive me, like some of my other favorite Disney Renaissance movies and they only get more cringy as I get older. Sure, yeah. But I do think that there is a kind of unnameable Disney magic in all of these films that is like part of the reason why they're so loved, why they're so good. When I look back at some of the like classic Disney movies, for example, Sleeping Beauty, which is a disaster. Well, it's incredibly problematic in terms of the writing, in terms of like everything about the plot and the story, but visually, mm-hmm. as like a visual work of art, it is the most beautifully painted animated movie like ever made it is so gorgeous to look at and also disney music is like particularly special these songs are so catchy (laughs) beyond the plots of these movies people love these songs yeah they're just good music yeah so I think that's all part of it. Obviously, like you've said, it's like an amazing like marketing scheme with like Disney World and like the princesses <laughs> are like the like Avengers club yeah. of princesses, totally. right? Anyway, all of that is to say Mulan stands out from the rest. And of course, I think even in this movie, there are issues that we're sort of letting slide because we love it so much. Yeah, but they're worth acknowledging. Yeah, absolutely. So let's introduce the movie. Mulan was directed by Tony Bancroft and Barry Cook with a story by Robert D. Sansucci and a screenplay by Rita Shaw, Philip Lezebnik, Chris Sanders, Eugenia Bostwick Singer, and Raymond Singer, with additional story credits to about 20 other people, (laughs) with music by Jerry Goldsmith and Matthew Wilder. And of course, it's based on the classic Chinese poem, The Song of Hua Mulan. It stars the speaking voice of Ming-Na Wen and the singing voice of Lea Salonga as Mulan. That's a whole lot of people. (laughs) That, to me, is like very indicative of how Disney runs their ship. (laughs) There's like 50 people in the story room at all times. How many of those people were Asian? Uh, Not a lot. How many people were women? Not a lot. So that's not great. Yeah, that's also pretty indicative of Disney. Yeah. I know that they sent their whole team to China Mm -hmm. to do like firsthand research, which is like whatever. It doesn't stick very faithfully to the original legend. Mm -hmm. It's very Disney-fied. It has a very like clean, happy ending. Yeah. There are other flaws that stand out to me, like how the Huns are represented. I think it's a pretty like racist 
representation of like an entire race. Absolutely. And we can chat about this now and then go into the virtues of the film. But in doing research for this episode, I came across an article that said the reason there's not more references to Buddhism, which is the religion that would have curated this culture, is because the director, Tony Bancroft, is Christian and wanted the film to reflect Christian values and not to involve too much of another religion, even if it's the religion that is accurate to the people depicted. So that's a true fucking story and got me pretty angry. Yeah, that pisses me off. I think in order to digest the value of this film, you have to look at what it's meant to little girls in America, particularly Asian American girls. I think in some ways, the making of this movie was in the right place. Most of the voice actors in the film are Asian Americans. Mm -hmm. Leia Salonga is like an absolute queen. She's Filipino. She's not Chinese. Right. Yeah. They make no effort, it seems, to like <laughs> cast Chinese Americans. <laughs> sure. It also barely scrapes by our rubric. Yeah. Mulan is truly like the only female character. Her mother and her grandmother and the matchmaker are there, but like, do they contribute in an important way to this movie? I don't know. A, I don't think they do. I don't think the film really does pass our rubric, and yet we're doing it anyway, because we think this film has a lot to say about this theme. But the dialogue spoken in this movie, 70% of the dialogue is from men. 30% is from women. In a movie that is called Mulan, that is a star vehicle for one character named Mulan, who is a woman. So, yes. Problems, yes. Values, yes. We're gonna go into the values now. I can only speak for myself, but as a gender-fascinated, gender-curious child, seeing a girl dressed as a boy... For the entire length of a movie, a Disney movie no less, was tremendously important to me and huge for me as a kid. That's all. I just, I think, I think these Disney movies have a huge responsibility to inspire young children and give them permission to be different. Mm -hmm. And for that, I think this movie was incredibly valuable. I agree. Do I think we now maybe deserve better? Yeah. But I'm really grateful that this movie came out when it did, came out 20 years ago, and the lead character was a cross-dressing Chinese girl. It's fucking awesome. <laughs> so we open this movie on the Great Wall of China. So beautifully painted. Mm-hmm. Also, so irrelevant, right? I'm just thinking about walls right now. I'm thinking about big... Are you just trying to plant the seed that walls don't work? Is that what you're saying? I'm thinking about big border walls <laughs> that were built by men... In some big expression of, I want to leave my big mark on the world in a big straight line. And thinking about how they just don't do anything useful. <laughs> the first two giant song sequences of this movie are like already triggering. Like, Honor to Us All felt so familiar to moments throughout my childhood of people being like, let's give you a makeover. Like, let's dress you up. And me being like, this feels so awkward and unnatural and weird. Why are you dressing me up like a clown? And why do I have to be dressed up like a clown in order for you to think that I'm pretty? Like that whole song felt so real. And this film actually has gotten some criticism that that song isn't like satirical enough, that it's like setting the status quo without enough criticism of that status quo. I don't agree. I think it's very clearly like mocking this set of standards that women have to live up to. Mm -hmm. I think between that song and I'll Make a Man Out of You, mm -hmm. which both illustrate the ideals of the binary gender, mm -hmm. I think it gets the point across very clearly that this is all in an ironic tone. Yeah. But we'll get to that also later on. I was already emotional in the first 10 minutes with the matchmaker judging her 
for being too skinny, for not having hips that could bear sons. And I also never clocked that they're trying to impress a matchmaker, you know, who's trying to set them up to marry a man. Who ironically doesn't fit any of the descriptives in the song of like what she's looking for in these girls. Right. I wondered if that was tasteless or very funny and clever that the ink goes on her face as if she has a mustache, as if she's a man. You know, like they're sort of comparing this matchmaker sensibilities to maleness. Mm -hmm. And maybe that's a good thing or I don't know. I mean, she's also like big. She's loud. She's gruff. Yeah. I think it just goes to show that this is another movie in our long line of films that we've discussed where women uphold the patriarchy as much as men. Absolutely. Yeah, if anything, she's the supporting woman character in this movie that Mm -hmm. really challenges it. Yeah, I think so. And then straight after that, we go into maybe the greatest Disney song Mm. ever, which makes me cry every single time I hear it because it feels so personal. And what's so beautiful is that it feels personal to everyone. (laughs) The lyrics are vague enough that anyone dealing with their own quote-unquote different, like their own kind of different that they feel that they are, anyone can project that onto this song. It could be an anthem for realizing you're trans, or it could be something at more face value, like you just don't feel like a proper girl who knows how to be feminine all the time. The reason the song gets so much love is because everyone thinks it's about them. Mm -hmm. And that's really lovely. This is a classic I want song. Yeah. This refers to a musical theater term for a big ballad that's sung by the main protagonist within the first quarter of the movie where they're stating the thing that they want. (laughs) We got a great one in Yentl. Where is it written? Right. But Reflection is one of the great I Want songs. Yeah. And Leah Salonga, bless her, has made a career of performing this song all over the world for the past 20 years. (laughs) And the reason I love Mulan so much as an active leading character is she asks this question, right? Like, when will my reflection? Like, she she poses this question. Uh And then really fast, she takes steps to answer it. She's like, I'm not going to wait around and watch my father die in war. I don't want to get married. Like, Mm -hmm. I don't want all of the options that are laid out ahead of me. So I'm just going to fucking sit in the garden in the rain, which is the coolest shot and figure out Mm -hmm. a new plan. I'm going to cut off my hair. I'm going to steal my dad's armor. I'm going to steal my dad's horse. And I'm going to go off into war. This happens in the first like 12 minutes of the movie. I remember first seeing a preview for Mulan. It was like at the beginning of one of my Disney VHS tapes. Yeah. And they had that shot of her sitting in the rain. (laughs) It's so iconic. I just thought, wow, I need to see that movie. (laughs) And like the lightning strikes. Yeah. It's amazing. This sequence with no dialogue where she, that in the beginning of the sequence, she decides what she's going to do. And the end of the sequence is her galloping off and her father running after Mm -hmm. her in the garden. That apparently was the seed that sparked this whole project. Hmm. Like someone was like, this is the first image that is then going to drive us through the rest of this production of making this movie. And I think that's so brilliant. Like that was the first thing they wrote and it never changed. Apparently like that was always how they were going to have that scene of no dialogue in the rain. And she just like gets her shit together. She gets her affairs in order, leaves the comb and takes the war papers. Mm, and, iconic. Yeah. 
and rides off on the horse. It's just so beautiful to think that that's what drove these artists to make this movie was that image. Here's the thing that's so powerful about that sequence. Without any dialogue in it, we're not like inside of her like inner thoughts about this decision she's making. She just learns that her father has to go to war and the next decision she makes is that she's taking his place. Yeah. It's such a clear, obvious choice to her Mm -hmm. that makes me really think that her father being called to war was simply the catalyst for her to live her own dreams. Mm. That this was something she actually wanted for herself. Mm. We have the song Reflection to show that she is already not content with the life and the identity she has. Yeah. So she's sort of waiting for any opportunity to take that leap. Absolutely. And they also really hit home that her father, he's an old man. He walks with a cane. He stumbles out of the front yard when he realizes she's gone. Like, he would have never survived in war. And so, yes, she takes it upon herself for her own identity, but I really don't think she had that much of a choice. Like, she was not going to let her father go to war. So then she goes off and she meets Mushu. Shrug. Shrug. Why do Disney movies always undermine their narratives with these comic relief characters that no one needs? I'm sorry, I didn't need Olaf. Like, we had two fierce ass bitches in the lead roles of these movies. Like, we don't need a little snowman. We don't need a little dragon. I'm so sorry, but we just don't need them. I think it's this idea that children need distractions like that in order to, like, sit through the story. That's just so undermining, isn't it? Yeah, it doesn't really make sense It's so condescending. I will say, though, that when I was a kid, my very favorite part of the whole movie was when Mushu, at the very end, was like, your worst nightmare. <laughs> I thought that was hilarious. <laughs> this is a tangent, but I remember reading that they cut the scene in Pocahontas, where Pocahontas and John Smith sing, If I Never Knew You. Do you know that song? Yes. They cut that because little kids were bored in focus screenings to see if they would be interested in the movie. I remember feeling such a passionate rage towards those children when I heard that story because I was like, I would have loved it. Why did you cut it? Those children were stupid. Right. What about kids like me who were super sentimental and wanted big dramatic sweeping moments? <laughs> So anyway, Mushu, Eddie Murphy, you're very funny, but get out of this movie. It's Mulan's movie. Yeah. (laughs) More Leia Salonga, less Eddie Murphy. Not to say I wasn't like a massive Eddie Murphy fan as a child as well. Oh yes, but this isn't his movie. Right. This is Mulan's movie. Yeah. I'll I'll go watch Dr. Doolittle on my own time. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, agreed. I do love Eddie Murphy though. And then she goes to training camp. And she meets Shang. Okay, I don't want to be like how you were with Yentl (laughs) and just totally objectify the leading man. But we just have to talk about how hot Li Shang is. He's so hot. Yeah. I wrote down a couple of times in my notes, it's important to reiterate how hot Li Shang is. (laughs) He's so hot. He's he's smoking. And Um, he's a drawing. (laughs) He is a drawing. That is correct. (laughs) I think definitely the hottest of the Disney men. Like, real childhood fantasy when I was, like, six. Mm. Like, definitely helped my emerging sexuality as a child. Like, <laughs> Li Shang, I'm all about you. Wow. With those high-waisted pants. Mm. Lifting shit with his arms. <laughs> I was all about you, Li Shang. And B.D. Wong has such a sexy voice. Yeah. B.D. Wong is also, like, pretty sexy in Super hot, too. yeah. That was brilliant casting. Although, like, Donny Osmond is the singing voice. I will say nothing because he nails it. It's such a great recording. He and sings he it so like well. And he sounds like B.D. Wong. Yeah. It's seamless. Yeah. 
So not just to objectify Li Shang, but he also serves such an important role in this movie to be the foil to Mulan that he is the extremity of masculinity, right? Like this is her other option. (laughs) Now she has to perform masculinity the way that she has been performing femininity her whole life. Mm -hmm. Like these are her options. And I feel like this movie is very beautiful in its self-awareness that all of these presentations of gender are so performative. You know, everyone in the training camp, all the other soldiers are not like Li Shang. Mm -hmm. They are normal looking guys who are gangly, who are overweight, who are short. Like it's all these subverted expressions of masculinity. Li Shang is the only one who's like the ideal image of masculinity. They're also all equally incapable. Right. At the start. Yeah. Including Mulan. Yeah. One of the things that I love about I'll Make a Man Out of You Mm -hmm. is that it is truly a training song. Yeah. The irony of the song is that there's nothing about being a man that makes all of these people good fighters. They all go from totally incompetent to totally competent because they've received training. It's a learned skill. All the qualities that they're talking about, that you could be fast and strong and brave, those are all learned skills that anyone can learn. Mm. It has nothing to do with gender. Yeah. And nobody is born with it. Amen. Amen. I think this movie is really conscious of all of that. Yeah. And really beautifully so. But also with that song, it is so incredibly extra, just as we talked about with Yentl. Like, that's why people love this song. Like, adults get stoned to this song. Everybody (laughs) loves this song across culture because it's so ridiculous. It's both ironically amazing and unironically amazing. (laughs) The lyrics are gorgeous. Yeah. You must be swift as the coursing river. (laughs) Like, that's cool. It's so over-the-top masculine. (laughs) I think that's what's so funny about it. Yeah. And all of the people he's trying to train to be this heightened version of masculinity are all these totally normal guys who are not particularly masculine. And then it's a girl in disguise. Like, that's pretty cool. Right. And like, the visuals are so brilliantly matched to the song where you see Mulan rising above the rest. Yeah. And like, beating Shang in a fight and climbing up that tower. Oh my god. Yeah, when she climbs up that pole, I'm like, yes, bitch, she's the strongest man here and she's a fucking woman. Mm And related back to what you said about Mulan wanting this, like actually wanting this, not just trying to save her father, and related to what you just said, that all of these things are learned skills. I really love that the film is saying what these women want is just like intelligence and knowledge in Yentl, and it's strength and coordination in Mulan. It's pretty basic wants. It's pretty fair, justifiable things that they're asking for. Like, she just wants to be trained as a fighter. That's mm-hmm. legit. That's There's nothing crazy or demanding about that. There's a video that went viral this week of Caitlin Ohashi, who's an American gymnast, uh-huh. just, like, giving the most incredible, oh, yeah. impressive, flipty, flipty, flipty <laughs> gymnastics performance. <laughs> just, like, a full split pop into the air, land on your feet, incredible athletic magic. And I just like, I see something like that and I'm so fucking proud to be a woman that like women are so capable. Yeah. That's all. That's amazing. (laughs) She'll make a man out of you. (laughs) I also thought during that song, I was like, you gotta love a good montage that covers weeks or months of training in Mm. like three minutes. Mm. I love a training montage. Gotta love a good montage. So after training, they're on their way. They're gonna be soldiers. (laughs) Off they go into battle. 
and they sing a very weird song. <laughs> right. This is sort of like the third song in the movie so far about gender. Love it. Fucking love it. Yeah. And um, this is also a very satirical song, mm-hmm. but from the men's perspective. They're listing the same ideals that were discussed in the first song, but now we have the image of Mulan there, who's their buddy, hmm. who's their competitor. Yeah who is their equal in many ways and their superior in other ways. (laughs) Sure. And it's a very interesting way to phrase a girl worth fighting for, as in we're going to war to fight for the girls who are waiting for us back home. And how in this context, later on in the battle, they do fight for Mulan, but in a completely other way. They fight for her as their leader. Mm, Amazing. And then there's such a brilliant transition from the peppy song, A Girl Worth Fighting For, and the bomb just drops. Drops and mm-hmm. suddenly we are in a pillaged and burnt village, and there's nothing peppy, and now we're in a war. Like the war has begun. Mm-hmm. And I found that so respectful that this is a kids' movie that is not going to sugarcoat war. We're gonna see war as terrifying and traumatic as it is. Dead bodies in a field, smoke coming out. She is, yeah. It gets real, real, real fast. Li Shang's father is dead, mm-hmm. which you really didn't see, or at least I didn't see coming. Mm-hmm. And she picks up that doll. Yeah. And she realizes that. Children have died. Yeah. I love the image of her placing the doll next to the sword. Mm-hmm. Because those are like her two identities. Yeah. And I was thinking, God, what a shame that women are not given the dignity of the choice to participate in war. Mm-hmm. Even though, obviously, women are also casualties of war, whether yeah. they like it or not. Absolutely. It's a lot to get out of a Disney movie. Yeah. And then the battle scene, the animation in that battle scene is so fucking impressive. It was the first movie to do this technique where they essentially copied and pasted let's say 10 warriors in that charge to make it seem like it's hundreds or thousands. And I I think I remember Mulan was one of the first movies to incorporate that kind of technique for mass scenes, for scenes that involved lots and lots of people. So if you actually pause that scene very carefully, you actually see repeat soldiers, but there's no way you know when you're just watching it through. So that got my movie geek brain like on fire. That was so exciting. And on top of that, Mulan is such a badass warrior. Mm -hmm. Like, she knows the best plan for the canon, and she knows that she doesn't have time to explain it. She just has to do it. That's something I loved particularly about that sequence, that there was nothing about that moment that had to do with her gender Mm -hmm. or even her, like, individual journey as a character. It was just the fact that she was an amazing soldier. Yeah. She just, like, had the creative mind to think of a good plan on the spot. Yeah. And the courage to achieve that plan. And I love that she just did it because she knew that it was the right plan and she didn't have time to check in with anybody about it. And that's like a learned trait that women adopt, whether they want to or not, where they second guess their own plans. They need permission to move forward with a plan before they can do it. You know, they need someone to validate their own opinion. That's a huge part of being a woman and it's so fucking unfair and it's how the patriarchy has taught us to be. In this moment, Mulan is completely throwing all of that to hell. She does not care about anyone's opinion of this plan. She doesn't have time. She just has to do it. She just has to make it happen. Brilliant. 
Mm-hmm. Women should look at that scene and be like, this is a metaphor for how I should be all the time. I have a great plan and I'm just going to fucking do it. I'm not going to read over the text message a million times. I'm not going to send this draft of this letter to three friends and my mom first to have them sign off on it first. Like, just send it. Just do your thing. Just do your shit and you'll win a battle. Yes. <laughs> High five. And she saves Shang's life. P.S. That avalanche looks absolutely terrifying. That Mm -hmm. horse is snow swimming. Very scary. Snow swimming is not a phrase. (laughs) It's not a thing that should be happening. Don't go snow swimming. (laughs) He is like unconscious and she's like carrying him. It's amazing. Well, the horse is really carrying all of them. Right. (laughs) And well, the men are like holding the rope. It's a a group effort. Yeah, that scene didn't look like it was possible with, you know, physics, but (laughs) I'm glad they were all saved. Yes. (laughs) And then... The table's turn. Hashtag the big reveal. The big reveal. She's a woman. And it happens a lot earlier than it did in Yentl. This is like halfway through the movie. Hmm. And Li Shang is not as overtly horrified as Avigdor was, but he's certainly upset and he's betrayed and he's offended and doesn't like Mulan anymore. Well, they discuss the protocol of something like this, which is, well, guess we got a killer now. Yeah, <laughs> we have to execute her. Right, and he he has the, the generosity of spirit to, like, allow her not to die. God. That's all he can offer to her in that moment. That, like, oh, you saved my life, so I guess I'll not execute you. Yeah. But then he leaves her for dead on a mountaintop. <gasps> That's true, too. And I never looked at it that way, that he actually then, like, doesn't care if she dies. Yeah. <laughs> oh, the patriarchy. Yeah. That's sad. But then we cut to the parade mm-hmm. in Beijing. And they're all so sad. They look totally ashamed of themselves. Oh. They look like (laughs) we're being called heroes right now and we all know who the real hero is and she's not here. And we left her for dead. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but she's such a badass. She doesn't even care that she's like been disgraced by the army. She just knows that she needs to help save the city and that's all she can focus on. If anything, the tunnel vision that was getting Mulan into trouble in the beginning of the movie, that she can't redirect her attention to what people want her to be paying attention to, that's a problem in the first half. In the second half, it's what saves the city. Like, she has this tunnel vision of getting to the emperor and stopping the Huns, and that's all she can think about. She can't think about her shame. She can't think about her gender. She can't think about her feelings for Li Shang. Mm-hmm. She just has to get the motherfucking job done. And then, of course, the method of saving the day is cross-dressing once again. Yes, I didn't quite know if this was just funny and silly or if this was kind of tasteless. So... I couldn't tell. I definitely had a moment of, okay, so they were breaking down the door, you stopped them because you said there's no time, and then you spent probably like an hour giving a makeover to these men. Like, all of that makeup and all of that clothing takes a lot of time to put on. I think that's just a brilliant example of this movie having obviously been made by men, because I I just think simply no one in the creative room said that. Right. I think they just didn't know that. They were simply ignorant men who were like, oh, they'll throw on some clothes, they'll whip up some makeup. And there were no women in the room, and especially Asian women, to be like, this is how long that makeup takes. (laughs) The movie doesn't want you to pay attention to the reality of what it is to be a woman. Mm -hmm. And the reality of being a woman is that makeup takes fucking forever to put on. So once again, Barbara would have authored that differently. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, good point. So yeah, they break into the palace. The Huns mistake them for concubines? That was the part I found weird. Should I not? Is that weird? I think it's weird. I mean, I think 
the whole treatment of like monarchy and empire in this story is like totally just like brushed aside like we're not gonna unpack like what it means that like there's an emperor right who comes across pretty great who comes across pretty great although concubines are casually mentioned right but i do love that they're using mulan's tactic of cross-dressing to win the day that's pretty cool i think the important thing that they're trying to get at is that these men have now learned that they don't need, quote, masculinity in order to be a soldier. Hmm. Yeah, I think that's great. Even though Li Sheng isn't wearing a dress, he gets to still, like, look masculine in his armor and his pants. God forbid we compromise the masculinity of the romantic lead. Exactly. Who's, like, hunky and, and young and is, as we said earlier, the epitome of masculinity. Mm-hmm. We could never question that. We can only compromise the masculinity of men who were never really masculine to begin with. If Li Shang was wearing a dress in that final scene, this would be a very different movie. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, meanwhile, who is the biggest action star of this whole sequence? Fucking Mulan, who is wearing a dress, no less. Presenting as a girl, not really wearing any makeup on her face, but just not giving a fuck about her gender expression in that moment. And just accepting the fact that she is female and then kicks proper butt. Love it. Love it. And again, going back to the animation, this film and The Breadwinner both have very similar ways of animating smoke, like these beautiful swirls. Mm. It's so gorgeous. So as much as I was getting into the action of the moment, I was like, look at those decorative swirls and colors. They're so delicate and gorgeous. (laughs) It's just really beautifully drawn. Yeah. And I think they quite clearly point to that irony of those men wearing dresses because Be a Man is playing in the background. (laughs) Which is so clever. Yeah. So when the entire city bows to her, I was so moved. Yeah. That's that Disney magic. (laughs) I think it's because it's so important to validate women like that. Mm -hmm. You know, because if no one had acknowledged her, if no one knew that she was the one who saved the day, she still would have saved the day. Like she still would have made all those contributions. And I think that's the heart of what it is to be a woman is that you make all of these contributions to the world, whether other people acknowledge it or not. So can we please acknowledge it? (laughs) Yeah, that line that the emperor says where he's like, listing all of the bad things she's done and then he pauses and he says and you have saved us all oh it's so good it's so fucking dramatic and it's so amazing (laughs) well that's that's pat morita the voice of the emperor he (laughs) was mr miyagi which is huge iconic iconic (laughs) and then of course you don't meet a girl like that every dynasty (laughs) (laughs) we definitely have not covered enough how hysterically funny this movie is but that's all it is it's just it's such a funny movie (laughs) And then Mulan politely rejects the emperor's offer to give her a high-ranking position in his empire, and she goes home. It's the hero's journey once again, returning to (laughs) our domestic bliss back home with the people we love. And she sees her father once again in the garden. (laughs) And he says, the greatest gift and honor is having you for a daughter. Like, truly crying every single time I hear that line. Especially in context of everything this bitch has gone through. Going to war. And then for him just to acknowledge her. I remember that line when I was a kid being very powerful, but... Oh my god, it means incomparably so much more as an adult now. Knowing the 
extent of misogyny that exists in the world that I just couldn't have understood and appreciated as a kid. Mm -hmm. To hear him say that means so much. And he drops the gifts Mm. that the emperor gave him and he just wants to hug his daughter. Oh, it's so good. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, God. That's all she wanted. That's all she fucking wanted. And then, of course, because it's a fucking Disney movie, Lee Shang has to show up. However. All right. However. It's so restrained. This is one of the only Disney movies without a big kiss. There isn't any kind of romantic climax. Like, the romantic climax in the final scene is between her and her dad. Yeah. It's not between her and Shang. I wish that was totally true, but then why do they feel compelled to bring him back? It's because I do think half the audience would have been like, oh, but we wanted the romance. You know, like, this idea of you're saying the climactic romantic ending, if it was really just with the father, then they wouldn't have added Li Shang. Like, they added at him because people want that shit and that frustrates me. I think he's sort of like a cherry on top of the <laughs> ending. Sure. It's that this like big hunky guy who's been the symbol of masculinity throughout the story has now humbled himself to travel to Milan's home and say dinner would be nice. Yeah. And also we just got to give a shout out to the funniest character in this movie, Grandma. <laughs> He's like, would you like to stay forever? Maybe the funniest line in the movie. <laughs> grandma's hysterical. Yes, Grandma's thirst for shame. <laughs> I'm all about it, Grandma. Good stuff. I love this movie. Great movie, Mulan. So to cap off this conversation about Mulan, I have a very special voicemail that we received from our friend Greg, who in an earlier episode recommended that we watch Soulmate. Greg is a good friend of the podcast. Yes. And he has some thoughts to share on his relationship to Mulan. So take it away, Greg. Hi, this is Greg, and I am submitting this recording from Bangkok. So Mulan has a huge uh, place in my life. Even before the Disney film, I'd already encountered the myth in, I, I think, many different facets. You know, from my own mother, uh, my mother's Chinese, and so she would, you know, tell me uh, these kinds of stories at bedtime, but also in picture books. And eventually, I came to see the movie when I was very young. I didn't remember it very well, but on a trip to China one year, when I was, I think, maybe six or seven, we were flying, and I had nothing to watch, but... They offered Move On, and not only did I decide to watch it, but I watched it four times on that trip to Beijing. And I watched it also in Chinese uh, dub, too, which was not very good. But that's needless all to say, just that, like, you know, it, it was a story that really strongly impacted me. Because I can't say that I'm anything close to who Mulan is, but this idea of the torn identity, of longing to be something else besides, you know, the expectation that was thrust upon her, you know, that was something that I really, really felt very strongly. And I obviously I think the major connection to it was that I was queer, that I didn't feel comfortable in my body embracing at the time uh, what was my homosexuality. And I also had a really difficult time of trying to fit into what was expected to me of what, you know, uh, being a boy is. In Chinese, there's this expression, han, which means uh, manliness, masculinity. And my mom always would scold me and she would tell me that I didn't have this han because I was, you know very effeminate and affectionate uh, as a child. But, you know, fast forward, Mulan has, like, continued to make the same impact on me as it has today, you know. 
I strongly believe in its message and its story. And I've actually gone back further and I've investigated its source a little bit, you know, uh, from the poem that it was first created in to the music that it was adapted to, to the various stage plays that um, it appeared in in China, all throughout its many different iterations. And often, you know, what I think American audiences don't really realize about Mulan was that it's actually not a traditional feminist empowerment story as much as it is more so a familial piety story. And that's a concept that comes from Confucianism, where it's utter devotion to one's parents. And the actual major purpose of the poem was to highlight how even though she was a girl and was not expected to take upon this duty, because she feared for her father's life, she rose up and, you know, took upon this mantle. And I love that it has transformed into this incredible feminist uh, testament to um, not only the power of human capacity, but also to the power of female capacity. So I love Mulan. It's a story that has been extremely uh, affecting of me. And I really, really hope that when this episode comes out, people will, you know, run for the hills to go see other different interpretations of it besides the Disney one, you know, to see the one that came out in 2008 that was shot in China. Obviously, I know there's the live adaptation Disney one, but please, 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 please check out all the different source materials that it came from, too. Um, thanks, guys. And it was fun. Wow, that was lovely. Thank you so much, Greg. That was a really helpful addition to our conversation. And I particularly love what you say about spending some time with the source material because I think that's a wonderful thing that some of these updated adaptations do for young audiences, that they open a door to classic literature that has been historically and culturally important for thousands of years. And what I really got from Greg's voicemail is the relationship between taking something that isn't explicitly about queerness and then applying it to one's own queerness. I think that's so powerful. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Greg. And also moving forward, everyone, if you'd like to share voicemails like this with us, we want them. We will take them. We have very clear instructions on how to do that on our website. So we must move on to the breadwinner. The breadwinner. Truly a gorgeous, gorgeous movie. I know. It's weird that all three of these movies are, like, clearly in dialogue, but The Breadwinner is, like, one of the most important works of art I've ever seen. Yeah. And not to to leave best for last, because we love all of our children equally, but Jesus, The Breadwinner is, like, fucking insane how good it is. Yeah. The Breadwinner was directed by Nora Toomey, written by Anita Daron and Deborah Ellis, based on the best-selling book by Deborah Ellis, who based the story on true accounts that she heard while researching in an Afghan refugee camp in Pakistan. The film stars Sara Chaudhry as Parwana. Yes, girl. She's amazing. She's amazing. Her voice work is incredible. Yeah. The film is international. It was produced by Canada, Ireland, and Luxembourg. And Angelina Jolie was an executive producer on the project and played a huge part in getting the film made in the first place, getting it adapted from a book. I think something that's really special and unique about The Breadwinner is that it takes a lot of the tropes that we've seen in the first two movies Mm -hmm. and it just like dials the volume down and it really approaches those tropes in a very subtle way. I think that subtlety you're talking about comes from its commitment to realism. Yeah. I think this is a far more responsible movie than the other two. Not that the other two aren't responsible, but 
This movie was made last year and it takes place less than 20 years ago. Like none of these themes are fictitious or theatrical in this movie. They are grounded in reality and they are grounded in this young girl's need to survive. Mm -hmm. And I think a really interesting thing that this film does is it has the story within a story. Yeah. It has this legend that she keeps going back to, telling it to different characters throughout the film to really paint that difference between legend and reality. Yeah, absolutely. I gotta say, it's sort of like The Witch when we talked about The Witch that I didn't quite get it the first time. The first time I watched this movie, I thought it was just so grim and painful and heartbreaking that honestly, I could barely get through it. Mm. And then the second time I watched it, maybe I had just matured, I don't know, but I allowed myself to absorb the humanity and the beauty in the way that the first time I was just so distracted by how devastated I was. Mm -hmm. But now, again, I don't want to play favorites because we love all of our children, but I think this is my favorite movie that I've discovered because of the podcast. Wow. Like, I was shaken when this movie was mm. over. The, the last 20 minutes of the movie, I, like, could not breathe. I agree. And on top of that, it's the most visually beautiful movie I've ever seen in my life. Yeah, it's really, really stunning. It's incredibly artistically done, especially with the difference between the real-world scenes, which still look like hand-painted and yeah. really vibrant and colorful. And the textures. Yeah. Juxtaposed with the storybook scenes, which are meant to look like paper collage, like cut paper. So this is a style of animation that I learned about researching this movie. Mm -hmm. It's called paper cut animation. Mm -hmm. You have all of these characters as cutouts, as paper cutouts, and you sort of play with them as if you would with paper dolls. And then you go shot by shot and collect it all together to create a moving picture. This film wasn't made like that. It was made on a computer, but it alludes to those styles, the way that the shadows work with the characters in the background. By using that style and alluding to paper dolls, which is something that people have been using for thousands of years to tell stories, mm -hmm. those story within a story moments, there's nothing about them that feels modern the story or the visuals that it's using to tell that story. I think it also evokes childhood. Yeah. Like the creativity of childhood. Mm -hmm. And this is a story being told by a child. Yeah. And the way they use simple images to evoke emotion, like the lines on the mother's face, you know, she has very subtle lines under her eyes and on her cheeks. And because of those very quick lines, we get an entire history of weariness and experience and heartbreak and disappointment and age and fucking having given birth to four children. Like we get this woman's whole life from just very quick lines on her face. Mm -hmm. It's so nice. <laughs> and Parwana's eyes, which take up like half her face. She has these giant, giant eyes. And as I was watching it, I sort of thought that was an implication that these filmmakers are demanding that we see her humanity because you can't avoid her eyes. You can't avoid how much emotion and depth are in her eyes. I wondered watching the film if that was a visual callback to the Afghan girl. Absolutely. It was the first thing I thought of mm -hmm. when I saw the graphic design for the movie. Which is one of the most famous portraits ever taken. It was on the cover of National Geographic in the 80s. It's been likened to the Mona Lisa mm. in terms of its like ubiquitous status in the world mm. as a, like a famous image of a woman. And she looks so similar. The bright green eyes. Yeah. The smoke swirls that we talked about in Mulan. The smoke is 
such a big part of this movie. Like you can feel the fire, you can feel the burntness of the air. And the last thing, I don't know about you, maybe this is a tasteless thing that I felt, but this movie, both in terms of scenes and in visually, you really feel the high stakes of food in this movie. Mm -hmm. You can smell the food and you can feel its absence. So by the end of the movie, I was hungry because <sighs> I could I could feel it coming out of the TV screen, how this movie smells. It's called The Breadwinner. Yeah. <laughs> and that refers to... Bread! <laughs> it refers to bread. It refers to the title of the person in the household whose job it is to make money to buy food and yeah. buy the things that a family needs. But in the context of this movie, it literally refers to bread. That this family cannot afford bread and she needs to do this in order to afford bread. So the first 10 minutes of this movie actually reminded me of Tangerine in that we hit the ground running. Mm. Like there's no time to just flounce around with exposition. Like we know where we are. We know the status quo. We know the circumstances. And then the father gets arrested and everything moves fast after that. Mm -hmm. The pace of the movie doesn't necessarily feel fast, but truly the timeline of like you hit like the 10 minute mark and so much has happened. You realize that it actually moves faster than it feels. We meet Parwana. Her father looks very weak and hungry and very kind. We get a real sense of their relationship very quickly. Mm. He's telling her the legend of their people. He paints the picture of a peaceful, nomadic people who were the casualty of competing empires. And in the chaos that ensued, a small group of very loud, angry people took control. Mm. And because of that group, which turns out to be the Taliban, that's when all of these rules were implemented, especially about women. Mm -hmm. So that's really important scene setting in the first few minutes of the film. It's really similar to what we discussed in The Hunger Games, that these injustices happen all over the world, and depending on who it's happening to and what they look like, nothing changes. Mm -hmm. The film climaxes with, quote, a war starting. They don't refer to what war it is, but we do know that this film takes place around 2001. Mm. So the war that is starting is the invasion of Afghanistan by the United States. Yeah. A couple times in the movie we've seen planes briefly flying overhead, and I'm led to believe that those are American planes. Mm. Of course, there's no explanation for that. The stakes of this film are so much higher than in the other two films. It's the most real and graphic regarding real-life patriarchal oppression. The violence is very upsetting, not only because it's interspersed with casual moments of family and humor and this young girl's journey, but also because just the style itself is very scary. When they're walking to the prison, all of the colors get grimmer, get more muted, get darker. When the mother is getting beaten, she's wearing a burqa, so we can't see how bad her bruises are and how badly she's bleeding. So because of that, your mind wanders and we're picturing the worst under that burqa. This film has really beautiful stylistic ways of making us fear for Parwana's safety. Mm -hmm. And so the fact that she has to break the law to protect her family, on one hand, you're totally on board with her doing this. And on the other hand, you're terrified that she's going to get hurt. It's funny. I think at least Western audiences think of animated movies as kids movies. Mm -hmm. This is certainly not a kids movie. Oh my God, no. I'm wondering why they made the choice to make it animated rather than live action. I read an article that said it would have been like unbearable to watch yeah. if it was in real life. But I feel like we've seen movies that are unbearably violent and devastating in the way that this movie is, and we've seen it be live action. But do we like those movies? Yeah, people liked Schindler's List. 
Yeah. People like movies like that. We were just talking a couple of weeks ago about how violence in entertainment is <laughs> appreciated by audiences. Not this kind of violence. This isn't the kind of indulgent violence of like action movies. Right. I don't know. But I also love that it's an animated movie because there's just such beauty in this art direction. Mm -hmm. Not to say it couldn't have been this beautiful as a live action, but I think the animation really adds such humanity and color to circumstances that are very grim and dark and maybe wouldn't have had as much space for color. It also becomes clear that these are all very recent changes. Mm -hmm. We know that the lives of women in this community are very limited. Mm -hmm. And yet we find out that Parwana was in school mm -hmm. recent enough to recognize a friend from school. Yeah. We know that photos are forbidden, and yet Parwana's family has a pretty recent-looking photograph of the father. Totally. So this change in power or local government that's happened with the Taliban is a very recent change. And so their response to it is sort of off the cuff as well of figuring out how to survive dressing up Parwana as a boy. Mm -hmm. They sort of improvise that pretty quickly because this is all new to them. They're figuring this out as they go along. And what's so amazing is the moment when she makes that decision, it's so undramatic. Mm -hmm. She sort of just has this like peaceful look on her face. Like this is what has to happen. Yeah. Her sister gets the same look on her face and her mother. All of the women in this house participate in dressing this girl up as a boy because they know that it's the only option. The father is gone. The older sister is too old to do something like this. Unlike the other two movies where a young woman who's gone through puberty, who has breasts, who looks like a woman, can like convince everyone that she's a boy. Right. This family, because they live in a more realistic setting, <laughs> yeah. don't even consider the idea that they can pass off the older daughter as a boy. Absolutely. The only option is to send this child who hasn't gone through puberty yet, because that's the only realistic way for a girl to pass off as a boy. And so when we meet Shazia, we learn that apparently young girls do this all the time to survive. Right. There are just girls running around Kabul dressed as boys, mm -hmm. trying to help their family. I'm so glad this movie exists to just paint that picture. Just let us know that. I love Shazia. She's great. She sort of reminded me of Beezy in The Fits, but just in a totally different environment. Interesting. <laughs> like these are both like the best friend sidekicks who have a sense of humor. It's just the stakes are incredibly different. Mm -hmm. Shazia, if anything, seems more in the realm of Mulan and Yentl than Parwana does in that she's enjoying exploring this identity. Mm. Well, and frankly, she's happy to get out of the house because she has what's been made clear to be a very abusive father. Yeah. Whereas Parwana has a very loving household. And mm -hmm. so if she were to be home all day, I don't think she'd really have anything to lose. Whereas Shazia, in sort of a heartbreaking twist, is frankly safer out in the world dressed as a boy than she would be at home with her father. Yeah. The look of devastation on Shazia's face when... Parwana says that she's moving, that yeah. she's leaving the city. That also made me really sad because I realized 
realized this won't last forever anyway. Mm. Like, you girls are going to go through puberty, and then you don't know what your bodies are going to look like. You might not be able to pull this off anymore. Yeah. Like, her life might change drastically within a year. Yeah. And that's really sad, too. I did, though, appreciate that Parwana does get a moment of excitement in feeling the freedom of being a boy. Yeah. When she goes back to the store that she had been to just the day earlier, and they just ask her what she wants, and she tells them... She doesn't even care that she's being made fun of, that they're blatantly laughing at her. Mm-hmm. Because A, her circumstances are so much more dire than caring if someone's making fun of her. And B, she is so overwhelmed with joy and agency that she can provide food for her family. I thought that was a lovely moment. Yeah. I love the moment when she's told that Atish isn't a name. And she says, it suits me fine. Because she's not a boy or a girl in this moment. She is something in between. She is a survivor. So why would her name reflect something masculine? Mm. Like, she just is. And so she needs a name to match that. I thought that was beautiful. I think it also reflects the creativity of these children. Yeah. Even though these are dire circumstances, they also just get the pleasure of choosing their own name. So she picks something fun. And again, going back to these films, being in dialogue with queerness and transness that is a hugely liberating moment to choose your own name to choose your real name i like that this movie even inadvertently touches on that mm-hmm. and celebrates that moment and even when her cross-dressing has lower stakes you know she learns to barter which is so cute she learns how to haggle in the marketplace and the merchant just like smiles at her and goes along with it there's a new sense of empowerment that this costume gives her and as dark as this movie is i really loved those few moments when we see Parwana really shine as like a grown-up. So we've met Shazia, but the other remarkable friendship that Parwana makes in this film is with Razak. Yeah. A grown man, a member of the Taliban. Yeah. He becomes friends with her because he thinks that she's a boy. Mm -hmm. She reads a letter to him informing him that his wife has died. It's devastating, that scene. Yeah. And... They form this weird close bond that somehow gives Parwana the faith to reveal her identity to him Yeah, in a moment that really matters. Yeah, it's all beautiful. That moment when Parwana reads the letter and then that being the prompt for the rest of their friendship, when Razak asks to see where in the letter his wife's name is written so he can just see her name even though he can't read it. It's so sad and it's so beautiful. And it made me think everyone in the world wants the privilege of knowledge. They want these privileges to be able to provide for their family, to read, these basic human rights of having agency, whether it's knowledge or food or whatever. And it occurred to me that Razak doesn't know how to read and it hurts him and Parwana actually has this privilege over him. So even though it might seem like he has all of the power in this situation, Parwana actually has a privilege over him. I thought that was really lovely to see him him in like a low status with her Mm -hmm. and this moment of vulnerability that leads to this really beautiful friendship yeah and the way he describes his wife too her name hala refers to the ring of glow around the moon yeah on a clear night which we then see every single time the camera pans up to the moon we see that glow it lights the way for her to escape the prison with her father wow and then to contrast with razak is I think another brilliant character in this film, Idris, 
Yeah. Who is a teenage boy, clearly like 16 or 17 years old. Not that much older than Parwana. Yeah, he's got this wispy little mustache. Idris reminded me of Kato from The Hunger Games. Mm. That he's this kid who has been taught what being a man means, Mm. what he has to do to be a man, Mm -hmm. and he is aggressively trying to fit himself into that image. He's sort of a parallel to Parwana in that they're both disguising themselves as boys. They're both putting on airs to seem more masculine. Mm, Totally. And a third leg of that tripod, which is so devastating, is that the voice actor who plays Idris also voices Suleiman, which I think is such an incredible parallel between how men are growing up in the reality of this world and then how this family has idealized their child who died so tragically. And to see both of these men grow up parallel to each other was really, really powerful. And God, that voice actor is so incredible in making these two voices so distinct, but also, you know, it's the same person. Like Mm -hmm. it's the same soul that started from the same place and then went off in very different directions. I think in continuing this theme of the legend versus the reality, I wonder if one of the things it's suggesting is perhaps if Suleiman had not died, he could have lived an existence similar to Idris. And Suleiman isn't the only son in this family. Little Zaki, who's so sweet, who's such a good boy in their family, it reminded me of our conversation around Pan's Labyrinth, that when there is a baby boy in a family, it is automatically given more prowess, more agency than the older sisters, (laughs) just because they know one day he will assume his gender privilege when he is older. So there's sort of this anticipation around Zaki that he just needs to get old enough to become the man of the house, even though there are three brilliantly capable grown women in the house already. (laughs) So that was interesting. I am obsessed with Soraya, the sister. I love that she and Parwana bicker a lot in the beginning. And then through these circumstances, they have to learn how to take care of each other and look out for each other. And by the end, Soraya is so good to her and they become a real partnership. Yeah. I'm obsessed with the mom. (sighs) Don't get me started on the mom. Love the mom. I mean, first, we're sort of fooled in the beginning to believe that she's meek. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? Yeah. She lives at home. She really, like, can't leave her house. I think that false image of weakness is established by seeing her so horribly beaten. Yeah. That we think that this is this woman's identity. And then the film really gives her the time to physically and emotionally heal after that experience. Yeah. A few scenes in the middle chunk of the movie, Parwana and Soraya are sort of just, like, trying to keep the ball up in the air while their mother is asleep yeah healing yeah and this all leads to the final act of the movie when she really steps up oh my god i was thinking that if this was a live action movie this actress playing the mother would be getting so much attention for this performance it's so striking at the end when she tells soraya to run off with zaki she's holding the wood with fire at the end like my heart stopped This is a mother assuming the role of a proper action hero to protect her children. She grabs the blade of the knife with her hand. Oh my god. (sighs) And she scares this guy away, this cousin who's like... Yeah. 
taking them against their will. She just scares him yeah. with her force of will. She doesn't even need to like physically beat him down. Yeah. It's just that her confidence in that moment or her just outright not giving a fuck anymore. Yeah. Doing what she needs to do scares this guy away and she's able to escape. And all of that character development you're talking about, having that visually filter down into that moment of her holding the knife in yeah. her bare hand. Oh my God, that'll like haunt me forever of this woman just like clenching this knife blade and being like, leave me the fuck alone. She says, I will scream and curse you until the last breath leaves my body. Oh my God. It's so dramatic. It's so powerful. This movie is so good. Yeah. I had mentioned this earlier, but this ending at one point got like too emotional for me. Like it was too hard to watch. It was too painful. It was too much, but... It sort of vaguely has a happy ending. At least maybe not happy, but hope. There's a lot of hope that I felt. There's hope that this family will be reunited. Yeah. But there's no promise of it. There's no promise of it. And there's no promise that their circumstances are going to improve. Like, even if the father survives, he is still in no shape to take care of this family. Mm -hmm. Like, Parwana still needs to be the breadwinner. But clearly the point of this movie was not to instill hope in us. It was to give dignity and humanity to this family. And that is so abundantly achieved in the Mm -hmm. last act. Every single member of this family has their moment to say, I'm a human being, motherfucker. I think that a pretty probable outcome for this family is that they'll end up in a refugee camp. Mm. There are bombs being dropped on the city by an invading army. The Taliban is taking over. They can't go back home. They have a fugitive with them. I think that the next step that this family will take if they all get back together is to make their way towards, for example, a refugee camp in Pakistan, like the one that Deborah Ellis visited, where she recorded the stories that became the basis of this book and movie. Mm. And I think that's a really important statement for this film to be making. That these are refugees. This is the narrative of a refugee family. Right. This is the horror that a family like this goes through before they become refugees. Yeah. And then, who knows, from that refugee camp, their next step may be to seek asylum in a country where they can be safer. Mm -hmm. Like America. Right. And after that, you know, they face the agony of going through the asylum process and immigrating. And then even after, if they pass that hurdle and they get to a place like America, they then have to face the horrors of racism and prejudice against refugees and any number of political and social burdens that come with that. Mm -hmm. Which is even particularly more ironic considering that I think this film suggests that America had a huge hand in the conflict that led to these people becoming refugees in the first place. Yeah, absolutely. So I think that's all a really incredible lesson that this film teaches at the end. It is an international film and whether it's, you know, pointing the blame at America or just saying this is a global responsibility that we all need to be conscious of. Yeah, it's funny we've spent so much time talking about the art direction and the aesthetic, which although that is so incredible to see as a film lover, but really just as a global citizen, it's really important to see this film and take in this story. Yeah. 
breadwinner. Love it. I love this movie. I want everyone to see this movie. And it's on Netflix. There's no excuse not to watch it. It's right there on Netflix waiting for you. I feel invigorated by this conversation. Yeah, me too. It's funny that these three films have this major theme in common of cross-dressing because they're all just individually such incredible films. So I'm excited we got to talk about them together. Mm-hmm. Agreed. So next episode. We have a little announcement. Our next episode will be the finale of season one. <laughs> I know. And to celebrate our season one finale, we're ending with a very, very special movie. If you've listened to every episode of this podcast, you might possibly know what it is. Yeah, and you might also be surprised that we haven't talked about it yet. We might, like, out-feminist ourselves right now. <laughs> I feel like it is, like, the most, like, cliche feminist I film. don't care. <laughs> don't give a fuck. No. The title of our season one finale is Let's Keep Going. And it is completely dedicated to the 1991 world-changing feminist road film classic, Thelma and Louise, <laughs> in which two best friends set out on a weekend road trip that spins out of control. <sighs> Thelma and Louise. Oh my god. Do you know that Kristen Wiig character in SNL where she's prepping for a surprise party? Yes. <laughs> And she's about to explode because she's so excited for the surprise party. That's how I feel about Thelma and Louise. I feel like I'm going to crush something in my hands. I'm so excited. Yeah. Thelma and Louise is very widely available on streaming mm -hmm. right now on a few different platforms for free. And you just have no excuse not to watch it. Speaking as someone who had never watched it before, my only impression of it was that it was something that middle-aged women liked and it was cheesy and it was sentimental and there was something about a photograph. I really didn't know anything about it. And boy, was I ignorant. It is everything I want a film to be. It will change your life. It will change your life. This yes. film will change your life. Yeah. Yay. And we're in the business of championing life-changing movies. So it's appropriate that we end with this one. So happy watching. We'll see you in two weeks for the season one finale. Let's keep going. And just as a reminder, we're still taking your voicemails, your comments, your emails. We want to hear from you. We're going to be spending a little time in our season finale with some listener messages. So now's your chance if you've been waiting to add to the conversation in any way. Bye. Feminist Popcorn is produced and hosted by Samantha Rare and Elizabeth Frankel. Our theme music is by Barrett Riggins. Our cover art is by Hannah Perry. Keep up with us on Instagram and Facebook at Feminist Popcorn. Tweet us at official underscore fempop. And email us your voicemails at feministpopcorn at gmail.com. You can find descriptions and links to all of our movies on feministpopcorn.com. And don't forget to subscribe, share, and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. New episodes every other Tuesday. Sam, the movie's starting. Pass the popcorn.